1: My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. Other people make friends? I'm just trying to make you a little money. My job is not just to entertain, but to teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Is it finally time to dust off the March playbook? Remember, this market got crushed in February as we realized the Fed wasn't done tightening. Then we had some banks collapse in early March, and we stopped worrying about the Fed <laughs> because we figured the economy had to be weakening. That led to a wholesale shift into tech and out of finance. That turned into a launching pad for a multi-month run led by the mega cap tax, especially in the magnificent seven. So could a similar situation be coming together now after weeks upon weeks of pain? The house of pain. That may be what we saw today. Dow advancing 127 points as the beginning, 0.81%, and then Nasdaq jumping 1.35%. It was a total shakeoff of the endless selling, and it really didn't start happening until later in the afternoon. While it's hard to believe that history could repeat itself, especially within eight months, i got to say the setup seems remarkably similar, even if the starting point is very different. Yep, today we had a bit of a replay from March, where newfound worries of a recession from demand destruction overwhelmed those who were fretting about an inflationary spiral of growth that seemed impervious to all the Fed's rate hikes. We just don't know if this is merely a one-day res though, or maybe this chart is something bigger. Hey, come on, after the Toronto House we've been through, a few hours of higher prices looms larger than maybe it should. It's been down so long it looked up to me today. To give you some context here, let's rewind the tape to the spring. In March, we had the collapse of a few highly visible banks, which set off a wave of fear that all of the regional banks might be going down like dominoes. (laughs) That fear caused a collapse in Treasury yields, a run toward the most solvent companies, and an abandonment of any company that needed to borrow money to make the numbers as a recession appeared imminent. As the mini-bank crisis dragged on, Treasury yields plummeted out of fear, and it seemed like the Fed might finally actually be done tightening. At the very least, they paused, and that was when the Magnificent Seven were born. And by the way, they were born out of desperation. The desperation of finding companies that had a lot of cash didn't need to borrow. They were flush. Now, we all know what's happened since then. The economy didn't stall. In fact, it accelerated. The Fed started a new round of rate hikes, and it made clear that interest rates would stay, and we use this phrase over and over again, higher for longer. In response, a very quick but narrow bull market turned into a wide and horrifying bear market masked by tech as rates climbed ever higher, almost piggybacking off the rally in oil. The most visible sign that the economy had become a runaway train, with stocks looking like a bunch of school buses stalled on the bond market tracks. That is until today. See, today oil, which had been hanging on by its fingernails after a brutal reversal two days ago that caused it to lose the $90 level, suddenly just got annihilated, falling more than 5 Bucks, 5%, fully more than 5%, to 84 bucks and change. This thing was 94 a couple days ago. It was a breathtaking decline brought on not by new supply from the Saudis or the Russians or even the Permian Basin, but by a collapse in demand. Specifically, seasonal demand, the lowest in 25 years because of high prices at the pump. That's right, gasoline, it got too expensive. And that collapse caused long-term Treasury yields to plummet. Remember, it seems like there's less inflation. Very, very refreshing after watching them go up in a straight line since April, isn't it? Makes perfect sense, too. When the long rates were soaring, we were constantly told the bond market was dancing to the tune of oil because oil is widely seen as a barometer of economic strength. Today, we realize it's possible that the turbocharged oil rally may have been nothing more than a charade, a sham even, something brought on by a short squeeze that ended when oil couldn't take out 95, let alone $100. Sellers, actual sellers came to the market, and their finers no longer seem to be begging for more oil because gasoline demand's been drying up at these high prices. It happened overnight. I mean, literally overnight. Now, there are a host of important indicators that are showing a much more mixed picture right now in the economy. We still have robust job growth and business formation, according to John Gibson the other night, that we had on the CEO of Paychex, which is the largest payroll processor for small and medium-sized businesses that are doing so well. The manufacturing economy is certainly humming. Maybe that's that infrastructure money. There are parts of the country where companies still can't find enough people to hire. We know there's still inflation flaring in many places. Plus, between the Fed and the Treasury, way too many bonds are being sold, which sends those Treasury yields higher. Remember, it is still a market. There's too much supply. But for a brief moment today, we saw the division between the flush and the naked, and the money rushed to the companies that were flush while running away from those that need to borrow. That's just like the March bottom. So was today a real repeat of March, replete with cascading bank stocks and the commodity stocks being clubbed in new submission? <laughs> I know you don't want to hear me say this, but we can't be sure. We have an auto strike that threatens to get out of control, with both sides hardening and billions being lost in this country because of the disruptions. Autos are a meaningful part of the GDP. They can't bring the economy down by themselves, but a strike can throw a lot of people out of work. we got housing numbers today that show the fewest mortgage applications since 1996. Hey, no kidding. Mortgage rates are almost at 8%. Of course that's going to matter. Three and change about a year and a half ago. Housing has been a horse, but maybe not such a swift horse anymore. Are these symptoms of legitimate slowdown that would make the spike in long-term treasury yields a one-time chance to lock in a much better rate than you've gotten if you want to invest since 2006? Or is it all fool's gold? Truthfully, again, you don't want to hear this, but I don't know. Isn't it better just to own that? I don't know. But here's the good news. We don't have to wait that long to find out. We don't have to wait on Friday morning at 8.30 we get the September non-farm payroll report. That's the single most important set of government statistics out there. And that's not just my opinion. Everybody knows it, including the Fed. Now, I have examined the long-term impact of every single report that comes out from the government, and the only one with true staying power to influence both stock and bond prices is indeed the non-farm payroll report. If it shows more layoffs than expected and slower wage growth, it'll be hard to justify the relentless rally in interest rates. They'll seem like overdone, and the Fed's more likely to stay its hand. So what do we do? Well, because this stock market is as oversold as it was in March, and you know I care about that oscillator, and that's where we got to, when we had the fabled tech-led rebound, I certainly can't count on selling. You might be dumping your stocks in the beginning, but it could be a better-behaved bond market with the earnings reports that will most likely be pretty good. Uh, in particular, like in March, I think tech will shine, especially the semiconductor stocks that aren't connected to cell phones. Hey, somebody downgraded Apple today, and the stock went up. What does that tell you? We've been buying some tech from My Travel Trust, which you can follow along by joining the CMC Investing Club. Purchased some yesterday. At the same time, the economic weakness could, could change the Fed's approach. Is going to hurt plenty of companies. Here's the ones you've got to think about. Retailers, banks, and housing. And margin was really just the banks. Now there are far more sectors that are, let's say, on the ropes. Last night I left here having watched videos of the usual billionaire suspects telling us on air the regular litany of negatives about the coming collapse of our great nation on the order of the national debt. I watched hedge fund managers, many of whom are probably likely short bonds, telling us to get out of bonds now because it's too late because bond prices are going to get crushed as interest rates soar because of hyperinflation. I saw moguls blast anyone with anything remotely positive to say calling them out as charlatans, as naïve bulls. I did not hear one person, certainly not one billionaire, say it was time to buy anything. Now, uniform negativity doesn't always mean we're about to bottom. Neither does this market's extremely oversold position, uh, nor the decline in oil. But let me put it this way. We certainly have plenty of tinder for a rally. There are some Kingsfords lying around and maybe even a flame or two. You get a weak payroll number on Friday, then I think we can get a narrow repeat of the rebound we saw in March. Bottom line. Maybe all that needs to happen is for the frantic bond sellers to slow the pace of their sales. They don't even have to stop. They just have to be less desperate. Once that happens, we can finally focus on the myriad stocks that have been crushed for weeks now, many of which don't deserve it. No need to jump the gun, though. We'll find out soon enough. Zach in Texas. Zach! Jimmy, Jimmy, how's it going, man? Not bad, Zach. How about you? Oh, it's a Monday. Having a case of the Mondays, but we'll get through really? it. Kind of, I think it's like Wednesday. That's all right. That's all, all right. right. Oh, I, might be, I might be wrong. I might be uh, wrong. No, let me check. I got a bunch of Apple things here. Oh, Apple, sell, 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 right? I mean, is that what they say? Go ahead. Oh. Yeah, that's what it is. Look, the Apple's man, only down sure. 30. Time to dump it, right? I mean, we got to get out of that one. What's happening? Look, look, man, I've been trying to pull the trigger for years, but here's what, I, here's what I'm on. In the next five years, where do you see Target stock going? Five years! Wow, God wants a five-year target claw. Okay, I think the target is a very good company, uh, but I only really like it in the, in the retail business. I like TJX. I like Costco. Okay, and they're good, and I like the Amazon, and I'm willing to throw in Walmart because I'm a forgiving judge of retail. All right. Hey, but- Whoa! Nice shot! okay take, take that! Now, it might be too early to tell, but if the ball market can stabilize from here, we may finally be able to focus on some of the stocks that have gotten hammered over the past few months. I'll I'll Mad Money Tonight. One well, running host and investor Jay earlier today, highlighting how many shoes my wife has bought in the clock. No, a host of long-term growth targets. And with the stock dropping an announcement, I'm running through the latest with the company's top rest. Then breaking up is hard to do unless you're Dan or her. I'm taking a closer look at the story after the company spun off its environmental applied solutions division. Hey, you got some interesting stocks here. And this year's been volatile year for the beer stocks. But could a stock like Molson Coors buck the trend? I'm checking in with the company CEO. So far I like what I see or taste, so stay with Kramer.
2: Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag MadTweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com or Give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. is something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com.
0: You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, The ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today.
2: Fact. Running a business is not getting easier on your wallet. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. Also a fact. Smart businesses are reducing costs and headaches by graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. See how you'll profit with NetSuite, and then you can think of all the ways you could be spending the money you save. Company retreat in Malibu, anyone? By popular demand, NetSuite is offering a -a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com to start saving.
1: What in the world happened to the stock of a one holding today? This popular Swiss sneaker maker... Best known for its running shoes is a longtime Kramer favorite. but after a magnificent run from its lows last October, the stock's been clobbered, along with everything else, for the past couple of months. It's fallen from $37 at its August highs down to $25 now, including a nearly 4% decline today, even as the rest of the market rebounded. See, on-holding had a chance to reset the narrative at its Investor Day event today, but Wall Street didn't seem to like what they had to say. Didn't matter these guys rolled out some very ambitious long-term targets. They say they can double their full-year net sales by 2026. That's pretty solid. Market only seemed to care that management didn't raise their full-year forecast for this year. I think that's a very short-sighted reason to sell an extremely high-quality company. But do not take it from me. Earlier today, we had a chance to catch up with On Holdings' two co-CEOs, Martin Hoffman and Mark Maurer. Take a look. Gentlemen, welcome back to Mad Money.
3: Super happy so to be back so glad again.
1: to be here. All right, Martin, let me start with you. You had this analyst day, and I think it was very encouraging. But you out, you put out some incredible targets, doubling net sales between 2023 and 2026, exceeding 60% gross uh, profit margin. How can you do that?
3: Yeah, we had a, we had a great day here. Uh, it was so good to finally be able to bring our investors here to really experience what on what our culture is all about. Uh, it was a day was full of innovation, product, uh, but also the numbers that, that you mentioned. Uh, so we continue to dream on. Uh, we want to triple our, uh, double our sales in the next three years, uh, reaching 3.55 billion net sales uh, by the end of 26. And we want to even accelerate on our profitability targets. Um, so our aspiration is to reach 18% plus adjusted EBITDA uh, target at the, at the end of 26. We have a lot of momentum in the business. Uh, we talked a lot about uh, what are the growth opportunities that we have, and uh, I think everyone left super excited. Well, I've got to
1: tell you, I know I was, and I've been a big supporter of yours. I felt at twenty, look, at thirty-five comes down to twenty-five. It seems cheap, but I got to have people understand, Mark. When you talk about elevate, expand, establish, what do you mean?
4: Yeah, look, elevate. We're speaking about what we've already been doing in the past, so we're speaking about the opportunity that we still have in running, we speak about the opportunity that we still have in trail, we speak about the opportunity that we have in geographies like uh, the US or or the UK. And then the next vector is, you know, things where we just started. So for example, we feel, you know, we're just getting started in markets like China. We feel we still have a huge, uh, you know, huge room for growth in own retail. So this will be a key growth vector going forward. And then there's you know, elements that were just starting, and, and this is the third element, and here I wanna point out training. So we've observed more and more people wearing on, especially the CloudX in the gyms of this world, and we feel we need to give them more apparel, more footwear, and, and we very much feel that entering training as a category will, significantly, will allow us to significantly grow going forward. Yeah, I
1: thought one of the most telling uh, pages in your deck, Mark, was the actually lack of awareness that people in the U.S. have in other countries, that the uh, runway seems so big given the fact that there are many people who have never even heard of you.
4: Yeah, I mean, in Switzerland, we have 47% brand awareness, right? Which means we still have 53% and left to 100%. In the U.S., we're not even close to where Switzerland is. So we're investing a lot in brand build. We're investing a lot in athletes. We wanna create bigger moments. And one of those was around the U.S. Open. Um, you know, where Ben Shelton made it to the semifinals, and it really shows basically that investing in these big brand build moments works. For example, our search on on tennis apparel and on as a tennis um, brand was up by 1,000% in the U.S. through the U.S. Open. So these are some of the big bets that will continue to to enter. All right, So Martin,
1: it is confusing to me. I was in a stock picking contest, and I said I went on, and there was a wag, someone who was critical of me, who said are you not aware about the inventory problem? Four of the analysts asked about inventory. There's too much inventory. I came back and said, I think I want good inventory, not bad inventory. But they just chided me and said, Jim, you don't know how to read the balance sheet. Could you, as the CFO, explain to the people who don't believe in on that your inventory situation is not a detriment to your progress?
3: Yes. So our inventory situation is that our inventory levels are a bit elevated because of the disruptions that we had in the aftermath of, uh, of COVID. But it is all fresh and good inventory, which we expect to sell at full price, which will drive the growth over the next uh, quarters. Um, so we feel we have work to do in getting that down but we don't have a risk to our profitability.
1: Okay, very good. That's important because a lot of people continue to tell me they're short the stock or whatever. I say good inventory, I want it. Bad inventory, if they don't have it, we're fine. Now, there's a page uh, in your deck, Mark, that I thought was very good having gone to law school, but I want other people to understand. It's called the fourth pillar, sui generis. What do you mean?
4: You ever mean creating new silhouettes that the world hasn't seen, right? So I think Where we're coming from is basically, you know, you can protect technology, you can patent uh, what we call cloud tech, but what you can't really, or what is very hard to patent is, is design and looks. And so what we're doing is, we wanna establish new silhouettes, new franchises like the Cloud Nova that the world hasn't seen before, and then on owns these silhouettes. So we're gonna bring more of those products to the market. And you know, we're also very, very happy to very soon, actually in a few days, and be launching a new product called the Cloud Tilt uh, together with a pretty famous fashion company. And so this will be another example of a sui generis product.
1: Well, let's talk about fashion. Uh, One of the things that astounds me, and I was talking to Regina Gilgan, my executive producer, and my wife Lisa Katerly, who has too many pairs in my closet. And Martin, what what everyone seems to be coming together with in the, uh, I'd say, where you have awareness, is that you are a fashion shoe, not just sports, but worn with nice clothes, highly unusual. Now, I'm not talking about worn with jeans. I'm talking about worn with dress-up. Now, I also think that that's sui generous. I've not seen other brands be able to do that.
3: Yeah, and this is why we also laid out today that actually the, the mission that we have is to be the most premium sports brand, rooted in sustainability, performance and design. And those are the the ingredients that drive what you are describing. So it's a premium product that goes very well uh, with with other products, but it's rooted in performance. And it's really all about uh, having products that are also used for performance. And this is why we are doubling down on the athletes that Mark was just uh, describing. We are significantly increasing our share on running route around the world. but we really love to see the product also being used in a, in a daily environment.
1: Well, good. I'm glad you mentioned that. I also think that you're part of the firmament. Uh, I mean, I've mean, i got to wrap things up here, Mark, with Cyclone. I think it would be wrong not to talk about Cyclone, a subscription product that I think many of the younger people know that is not about show. It's about real when it comes to ESG. Yeah,
4: hey, we, we launched Cyclone because we have a very simple mission. We want to make all our products ready for circularity. And so Cyclone was the first one. It's made out of one material. It comes in a subscription model. And once you've used it, we can basically take it back and recycle it. And so this is a very, very important part of our sustainability strategy. And the other important part is that we're basically getting out of fossil fuels. So we also launched a product that is made out of carbon emissions, or we showcase the first product. You can expect that to come to the broader market as of 2025 as a technology. And those, those pillars will really allow us to you know, execute on what we believe is so important to this world that we're making the whole industry way more sustainable.
1: Good. This is not just saying, listen, we like the environment. You're doing something about it. Uh, I want to thank Mark Moore, who's the co-CEO, and Martin Hoffman, who is co-CEO and CFO of On Holdings. Gentlemen, I, I, it's really great when you come on. I really appreciate it.
3: you so much so happy
1: thank Thank you you. thank you mad money is back after
2: the break coming up spinning and winning are these companies worth more apart than together kramer makes the pieces fit next
5: when you're hiring the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all don't search match with indeed
1: On Monday, we got not one, but two long-awaited breakups. Danaher, the life science and diagnostics titan, spun off its environmental and applied solutions division as Feralto, while Kellogg split into W.K. Kellogg for the North American cereal business, and Kelanova for its growth-oriented snack food business. Now, none of them has gotten much love here, Thanks to the miserable tape. Hey, that could be changing, right? I think it's worth taking some time right now, though, to go over these post-breakup companies because both moves could unlock a ton of value for shareholders, particularly if the tape gets better. Tonight, we'll start with the Dan Hurst spinoff, and later this week, we'll cover Kellogg. Now, data is a stock we bought for the Chapel Trust early last year, and I think it's a pretty straightforward story. This is a company that spent many years unloading side businesses to focus on its fast-growing life sciences and diagnostics divisions. But they still had some unrelated legacy operations, like their environmental and applied solutions division. These things just don't really belong under the same roof, so Danner spun off Veralto to create two pure plays. The idea here is that the new Danner will get a higher price earnings multiple, more about that later in the show, as a life science and diagnostic pure play. Because it'll have faster growth and higher margins now that Veralto's gone. Meanwhile, maybe Veralto will get more appreciation as a standalone company. Because nobody really cared about it as a small division, but Daner. This is a business that's all about water quality testing and product identifiers. And hey, Verato is good at what it does. They're essentially essential uh, to municipal water suppliers, including right here in New York City, which has some of the best tap water in America. You know, I never really understand why restaurant patrons ask for expensive flat bottled water in New York. We got the best water there is in the country. Verato's technology helps us disinfect up to 2 billion gallons of water every day. When you dig into the financials, there's also a whole lot to like here. For those of you who don't remember, Dan has spent decades acquiring businesses and then making them more efficient. They were the best at this in the world. But then conglomerates went out of style in the Wall Street fashion show, so they decided to become more focused. And uh, businesses like Verato, they just no longer fit in. However, this newly spun-off company has spent 20 years benefiting from Dan Herr's excellent management. Roughly 57% of Veralto's total revenue comes from recurring sales, which is not quite as high as the old Danaher 75% recurring revenue rate before the spinoff, let alone the new Danaher, but it's still pretty impressive. And the business isn't particularly capital intensive, so Veralto is consistently able to convert 100% of its net income to free cash flow, very strong. Going forward, Veralto expects to retain a modified version of the old Danaher strategy, which is not only focused on constant self-improvement, but also strategic mergers and acquisitions. Basically, as a standalone company, they can take their cash and use it to roll up the water quality and product identification spaces of which there are many small acquisitions to make. At its Investor Day event last month, Veralto's management said they'll have greater flexibility to use their cash to make smart acquisitions. They no longer need to ask permission from their old parent company, something they weren't going to get within Danner because Danner wants to be a life science play. They don't want to double down areas that aren't growing that fast. As for the remaining slimmed down Danner, I won't go as deep here because this is a stock I've recommended for years, although it's been a real dog of late. We'll talk about that next week when we do our Invest in Club Conference Danner is a supplier of everything from big ticket Items to a common consumables For life sciences industry customers And they also offer all sorts of services But the key point to understand is that Danner Is now pure play on life sciences and diagnostics Without the Viralto business Their overall growth rate should improve In fact it will get even more of a boost When Danner completes his $5.7 billion Acquisition of a company called Abcam. That's a British life sciences company Focused on antibody treatments now, those of you who've followed Danaher for a while know that the past couple of years have been real rough. This stock set at an all-time high way back in September 2021. It's basically been drifting lower ever since. A lot of that's because Danaher's diagnostic business made a fortune from COVID testing, not to mention all the farm and biotech equipment they sold for vaccine development. That's why the stock went from a split-adjusted price in the 130s at the end of 2019 to its all-time high of $296 in change in September 2021. But well, like all the other COVID winners, there was a post-pandemic hangover as Dan and her lapped those high numbers and then customer inventory levels became elevated because so many orders had pushed forward. In response, to stock got clobber, don't we know it for the trust? It's been difficult to own. More recently, Dan had another problem, the dead IPO market. Why does this matter? Okay, well, when you make life science equipment, many of your customers are smaller biotech companies, and this is an industry that can't really operate unless it's able to raise money. Normally, these small biotechs can raise cash by coming public, which they then spend buying equipment and consumables from alphas like Danaher. Even the private funding markets have dried up over the last couple of years, though, because most venture capital funds have been beaten into being a lot more cautious. Long story short, early stage biotechs have a very hard time raising money. And that means Danaher lost an important group of customers for about a year and a half. Now, here's the good news. It looks like things are finally getting better. Danner's last quarter delivered in July was fine, although the guidance of the third quarter was a little guarded. I take talking about a slow single-digit core revenue shrinkage. That that's not that good for the Daner that I know. And they even cut the full-year forecast, which is really not the Danner I know. But you know what? Danner actually rallied in response, which is often a sign that the bottom's been put in. There's now a sense that the industry-wide glut of bioprocessing equipment might actually be worked off. Managing stopped short of explicitly saying so on its July conference call, but they did say that their team's closely working with customers to normalize inventories as quickly as possible. And they've intensified those those efforts in order to get that process done by year end. Inventory's bad for these guys. They're getting rid of it. Once the bioprocessing market bottoms, I'm confident Dan can get over its post-COVID hangover. At the same time, the IPO market's coming back to life, meaning that maybe their smaller biotech customers can raise capital again. So what should you do with Danaher and Veralto shares? Look, we're holding on to both stocks for the Chapel Trust right now. Viralto's currently trading at $77 and change, but if you look at Xylem as a comparison for the water business and Zebra Technologies for the product ID business, then Veralto could easily be worth $90 per share, $13 above where it is. Doesn't hurt that this one has much better margins than either of those comparisons, and I would actually argue it's much better run. So we're talking about the potential for something like a 16% upside here. That's worth holding on to. As for Danaher, we're sticking with it for the long haul especially now that the stock's been hit hard since the beginning of September. It has come down from nearly $240 to $216 right here. I think it's a steal. Uh, Jeff Marks and I, my partner in crime for the Travel Trust, we both talked about maybe buying some Danaher today. I I think it makes a lot of sense. Here's the bottom line. I think this Dan Hurd-Viralto situation is a textbook example of the kind of breakup that can create a ton of value for shareholders. something that we really like and constantly talk about in the club. These are two high-quality companies that didn't belong under the same roof. And sooner or later, I think they'll get higher valuations on their own, especially once Dan Hurd's bioprocessing business finishes bottoming. And we know from speaking with Whole Logic just the other day, it's in a similar business. They were very close to it. And Thermo Fisher, TMO, says the same thing to me. So I think that dinner's time is at hand. Let's go to Eddie in Arizona. Eddie. Booyah, Jim, from Phoenix. How are you? I am good. How about you? How's those Cardinals How doing? Kind of early uh, for them. It's early. Quite yeah, early. We'll see. We'll yeah, see. very early. Hey,
0: before, I, before I ask my question, I just want to thank you so much for everything you and your team do. I, I, I'm 36 now, but I grew up watching you with my mom back on like the uh. Pablo on days. And, and Matt no, that's now. great. Eddie, that means a lot to me because I,
1: I felt if we get people young, they could be with us for yeah. the rest of your life. That's exactly what a Colgate wants to do. That's what yeah. a Clorox wants to do. So we're doing it right with this, not consumer packaged yeah. good, but financial information. How can I help you?
0: Yeah. Well, my question for you today is about XPO, well, more about the spinoffs. So I own XPO, um, one lot of XPO. It's now risk-free. I, I took my cost basis out. I'm a Charter Club member, so I took the lessons from you Removed my basis. And um, now I've got RxO and GxO, and I don't know as much about them. And I feel like uh, they're probably great companies, but it's just more, it's more homework and more research on my end and more things to keep track of. Well, you know,
1: it's funny you say that because I felt the same way. I said, wow, RxO, the GxO is logistics. It's pretty good. Uh, Look, they're both good. You took your cost bases out. I think you can let them run. I think they're both really good companies. And thank you for those kind words. It means a lot to me. Alright guys, I think Danaher and Veralto are two high-quality companies that are better off on their own. And I think both will be rewarded with higher valuations now that they're not under the same roof. I think we should be thinking about buying more Danaher right here ahead of my club meeting next week. Now much more man money had including my exclusive with Molson course. This is an interesting stock. After announcing some new growth targets and two billion dollars worth of share repurchases, at its same strategy day, I'm digging the announcements with the company's top rats. I like so far what I've seen them. And how do you buy these stocks in a volatile market like this one? I'm revealing an important algebra lesson that subscribers to the CBC Investing Club know all too well. And a lawyer calls rapid fire in tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. Well, this has been a crazy year for the alcohol industry, especially the light beer space where the previous kingpin, Bud Light, made some marketing missteps that opened doors door for his competitors. One of its biggest winners has been Molson Coors. But unbeknownst to so many, this one's been winning for several years now because of very savvy CEO, Gavin Hattersley, who just had a terrific analyst day, laying out what's been accomplished and what can be accomplished still. We are fortunate enough to have Mr. Hattersley with us to talk about the strategy and what he sees happening in Molson Coors and the industry in general. Gavin, welcome back to Made Money.
6: Thanks very much for having me, Jim. It's great to be back. Well,
1: I'm so glad you're here. Now, Gavin, I think the tourism says by people that, wow, you've really taken advantage of a current fracas in the beer market. But the fact is, you have been growing numbers since for several years now. This strategy meeting, I think, pointed the way. What is fueling the turn that did not start this spring but has been going on for several years?
6: You're 100% right, Jim. I mean, we started our revitalization plan about three and a half years ago, and we've laid the building blocks to um, make our organization ready to grow. We're built for growth. We actually are growing, as you rightly call out, and uh, we've laid out our plans to grow into the future for two, three, four years' time. and You know, last time you had me on the show, Jim, you you predicted that and you were right. Well, look,
1: I had to. I like pre You were back in that. And I also know because you have a finance background, you decided to get that balance sheet right. Those are the two things I love to see. Talk about them because you accomplished them in a very short period of time.
6: We did. I mean, four years ago, when this team came together, I think our leverage ratio was was close to five times and, and we got it down to just below two and a half times at the end of June. And we've We've laid out our algorithm to keep it below two and a half times. At the same time, Jim, we announced a a two billion dollar share rebuyback, buyback program, which will go into place immediately. Well, I,
1: I think people should know it's your company is like 13 billion. I mean, that's an actual you're buying a ton of stock back from what's publicly traded.
6: Yes, yes, we are. We're going to do that over five years, Jim.
1: Well, I think it's fantastic. Now, I do have to ask you there. Are, I read a Gallup poll. Uh, younger people apparently aren't drinking as much as they used to. Uh, do you see that? And also these GLP one drugs apparently making it so people don't want to drink as much. Have, they, have you seen any impact from uh, the change in habit or the change in medicine?
6: Jim, you know, from a GLP one point of view, no, we haven't seen anything. And I think there's a lot out there that's still unknown, right? I mean, it's not an it's it's an expensive thing to get to a path to go down, right? It's more than a thousand bucks a month. Um, but what it does do is it does play into this whole health and wellness um, um, drive that that increasingly consumers are moving along, particularly twenty-one to twenty-seven year olds. And that plays right into our overall strategy, where we're moving beyond beer, we're moving into non-alcoholic products, whether those are energy drinks, whether they're non-alcoholic beers. In fact, one of our bigger innovations, which I think is going to be a big deal for us, is the launch of of Blue Moon Non-Alk, which we're bringing um, in uh, December, just in time for, for dry January. And I think that's going to play right into that space, so, into that uh, space.
1: Gavin, I'm so glad you brought that up, because you, know, I, you and I both know, because I have some background in the liquor business, I am shocked at how, after many years of people not liking these non alcoholic beers, which I have to say, I always thought tasted awful, they now taste good. And I think that you were the one who told me this could happen. I always said, there's no way those beers would taste good. But you have seen it, and people like them.
6: They do, Jim, and you're absolutely right. If, if, if it tastes good, the consumers are going to drink them. And I think our brewers have done an amazing job getting, you know, Blue Moon Non-Alk to taste very, very similar to uh, Blue Moon Belgian White. And I, we, we uh, sampled it at the Investor um, Day yesterday, and they loved it. So... I'm looking forward to getting that in the market in December.
1: You and me both. All right. So the so-called browns and the clears, the vodkas, the gins. You you've been in some of the browns. Are they tapering off? I know beer's still growing, but are are the actual hard spirits not growing that much?
6: No, they're growing as well, uh, Jim. They're they're still increasing share of, of the alcohol space, and and certainly our acquisition of Blue Run Spirits Company is uh, playing right into that into that trend and. And it's an above-premium product, really high margins. It's a great product. It's got a great uh, team that's working behind uh, that uh, that acquisition, and we're very excited about it.
1: Okay, how about at the store level? I know a lot of people drink at a, a bar, but how are you taking? are you taking shelf space in the last, say, year or two from other beers?
6: We're taking a ton of shelf space, Jim. That was one of the big points we landed yesterday. You know, these trend changes that we're seeing and have seen now for six months – I know there've been a lot of question marks around whether that's going to stick. Well, I can tell you it is sticking. Uh, we've now got six months of, of, of data to show that those trends are not changing. We're gaining a ton of uh, shelf space in the fall resets, which is very unusual. That doesn't normally happen. And we're expecting to take a lot more in spring. So not only are we getting thousands and thousands of new tap handles, we're getting tens of thousands of extra square footage of retail and, and, and that is what, um, is, is one of the big underpinners for us as we head into next year to drive uh, the continued momentum.
1: I've always felt that when you take shelf space, it may be glacial when you take it, but it's incredibly sticky once you've got it. It is highly unlikely it'll be rolled back and more likely that you'll be gaining more space, wouldn't you say, sir?
6: I completely agree with you, Jim. Once you've got it and uh, your brands are as healthy as our brands are, like Miller Lite and Coors Light, uh, it sticks.
1: All right. You've been doing some personalization. I've got I happen to be a Flyers fan. I've got in my in my uh, in my refrigerator all these Flyers buds uh, uh, about you You seem to be making good stuff where the labels matter, I think. Do, is that do. just you and me? Tell me about it. Tell me what people yeah. like to drink.
6: Well, no, I think the consumer loves it, uh, Jim. They love seeing uh, um, their, their favorite football team or their favorite ice hockey team or baseball team showing up on the. On the, on the packaging, the secondary packaging of their beers. And we do that extensively with, with Miller Lite in particular. And we're also introducing it to Coors Light uh, next year.
1: Now, I, I've been remiss if I didn't talk about the fact that you're really an international brand. I'm focused on America. But if I were to go over to Europe, would I not see your brand be the number one in almost every country?
6: Yes, you would. Number one or number two, um, Jim. So if you were in Croatia, you'd be drinking Ožuska. That's our brand. If you were in the United Kingdom, you'd be drinking Carling, you'd be drinking Coors, you could find Blue Moon. And you would also find our, the, probably the best innovation we've ever had in Europe, which is Madrid. We launched that brand three years ago, and it is all, already one of our largest brands in our portfolio. It's a, it's a machine.
1: Don't these travel? I mean, I would like to see some of these. I mean, I, look, you and I talked about how much we like European drinks. I mean, I used to drink, my father used to drink Carling. These great beers. Bring them back.
6: <laughs> well, we've got Peroni here right for you now, Jim. That's a great European beer. It's delicious. But uh, yes, Madrid is a winner, and I'm sure you'll see it um, at some point in time in the future. All
1: right, you and I'll knock back one. That's Gavin Hattersley's presidency of Molson Coors Beverage. He's had a remarkable turn, not in six months, but in multiple years. Thank you, sir. Great to see you. Thanks, Jim. All right, Mayor back here for the break. play And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready, Skeet? That's all the lightning round's now. I will start with suit here in Texas. Suit here. Hi, Tim. How are you? I am good. How about you,
4: sir? I am good, too. talk to discuss is upstart holding, ticker symbol UPST. Manage yeah, to you know,
1: it's a little too risky for me. It's losing money. I have not liked it. I don't like the stocks that are, like, kind of these faux banks where there's too much risk. Let's go to Zach in New York. Zach. Hey, Jim. Booyah. Booyah to you. No. <laughs> so, I want to ask your opinion
0: on a stock. Okay. Name is Altria Group, ticker is M-O. Yeah, I'm not gonna, gonna recommend them. You
1: know what? I'm too old and I've seen too much destruction in my own life for tobacco for me to recommend a tobacco stock, including people in my family. So I'm gonna take a I'm gonna take a hard pass on that one. Let's go to Kyle in Wisconsin. Kyle! Hey Jim Kramer, you know I like ya. I didn't know until just now. <laughs> you know why? Because you're a guy with some gut. Booyah. Thank you. Thank you. I'm, a retail, invest- I'm right. a retail investor holding quite a few of the SoFi
0: $8 call options, which expire three days after their earnings date. I bought the contract at $47 a piece when the stock was at its lowest
1: in All June. Right. Okay. Fill your guts, Jim. Tell us what you know. Well, look, I, I, I don't, I mean, I'm not a big buy call ahead of quarter guy because that was the old days, but I will tell you this. I think that Anthony Noto is doing a fabulous job. I also voted for his son for Athlete of the Week, by the way. I went in there. You can go to my Twitter page. But Here's what I see. I see that the company is uh, had a really huge move and then had a big pullback, but I think that Noto is a steady hand, so I'm in favor of owning a stock but not trading the stock. How about we go to Bree in Massachusetts? Bree! Hey, how are you? I'm okay. How are you? I'm doing well. You know, markets are tough, but... I have a quick tough. question for you. Sure, I'm available.
5: So I know that you spoke about NEP earlier in the week and the fact that it revised its dividend. NEE Nextera Energy has dropped significantly this week, They've and last week you more.
1: They've crushed this thing. I got to tell you, I heard an analyst today talk negatively about it down here at 50, but it only yields 3.6. So I got to tell you, I'm still not sold on it. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the lightning round. The Lightning Round
2: is sponsored by Charles Schwab.
1: How do we value stocks in this terrifying whipsaw market? At the CBC Investing Club, we call it solving for M, with M meaning the price to earnings multiple, what the market's willing to pay for a company's future earnings. Don't freak out about this, please. It's just a bit of algebra. You all took it. If you want to know where a stock's headed, you need to figure out how much a company can first earn per share in the future. That's the E. And what Wall Street is willing to pay for those earnings. That's the M. E times M equals the price of a stock. Jetbox and I are constantly trying to figure out the M. Mention all the time on the network is the multiple. Before we buy anything for the travel trust, because it helps compute a price target for you. So let me give you an example. Let's say you got a stock, it's, okay, an airline. It looks like it can earn six bucks per share, okay, for next year. First, ask yourself how much confidence do you have in that number? How much pressure will the bond market put on it? A subjective figure based on the direction of the 30-year Treasury yield. Remember, stocks are what is known as long-dated assets, and they compete with bonds. Higher bond yields make their stock's future earnings less enticing. All this factors into how much people are willing to pay for Delta in the, in the future. In the out years, in a combine market with uh, travel booming and tame oil prices, it'd be a no-brainer to buy an airline stock at, say, 10 times earnings, roughly half the current uh, multiple in the entire S&P 500. Right now, the S&P is selling for 19 times earnings. At this very moment, though, the airlines are getting pummeled, along with the whole transportation index. Fuel costs are high, even after the big breakdown in oil today. Same goes for the yield on 30-year treasury, so I don't want to pay 10 times earnings for Delta like I normally would. Hey, let's why don't we do this? Why don't we just slash it to five times earnings? <laughs> now you multiply the forward earnings estimate six by five, the multiple, and you get 30. Down six from where it's currently trading. Meaning Delta stock is likely headed lower based on this price earnings and earnings or PE analysis. Here's another example. Last night we had Macy's on the show. Right now, the analysts who cover Macy's, on average, think you can earn a little less than three dollars. This is an eleven dollars stock, meaning that it sells for less than four times earnings. One of the lowest in the entire market, staggering low. Remember, the average stock in the S P 500, as we just mentioned, is 19 times earnings. Now, since the stock of Macy's, it's insanely cheap. It doesn't deserve that. No way. When you see a price earnings multiple that's low, only one fifth the S P 500 is multiple. It is, though, a vote of no confidence. It says money managers are all betting Macy's can't make the numbers. They'll have a weak Christmas and won't be able to refinance this considerable debt load because rates keep going higher. And things are only going to get worse for its customer base. Many use the Macy's credit card. The market's saying that there'll be credit card being the false inevitable when you see the yield in the 30-year keep soaring and consumers tightening their belts. That's why the price earnings multiple so low. The multiple says a lot, and it is very worrisome for Macy's. But let's say the outgoing CEO, Jeff Gannett, and his replacement, Tony Spring, that we had on the other night are right that it's a good holiday season. Let's say they mix it up and have more Bloomingdale's and more well-off shoppers, people cottoning up to Blue Mercury, their high-end cosmetics line. Let's say tourism comes back, vital for the Big Herald Square store in Manhattan, and there aren't too many credit card defaults. Then Macy's can make the estimates. And if they actually hit those numbers, the stock will get a much, much higher multiple. So if you have more confidence in those earnings estimates, why not give Macy's the same multiple that you were willing to give the much more volatile airlines? Let's say you pay five times earnings for this one. Well, then you'd have a $15 stock, three times five, up from 11 and change right now. Now, let's go back to what we said in the investing club if we wanted to buy Macy's for my charitable trust. We'd say the market's paying too little. Again, it's the M for those earnings estimates. Estimates we feel good about, so the stock's too cheap. We trust management. We think it's a buy because it should rally four points from here once they make the numbers. And this is how you solve the valuation equation, and you can do it too at home. After all, it is just eighth grade algebra. Dust off that part of your brain and you'll know what to pay for a stock. It is that straightforward. As long as you factor in all those variables, the variables we talk about every day in the club and right here on Mad Money. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere and I promise you I'll find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you tomorrow. Last Call starts now.
0: its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Mad Money Disclaimer, please visit CNBC.com forward slash Disclaimer. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you